Hey everyone, and welcome to today's episode where we interviewed our friend Arthur Stern. He's an incredibly resilient person who has experienced homelessness in his past, but pulled himself out and is now a successful rabbi with a business administration degree, has a master's in spiritual psychology, and a doctorate in psychology as well. We're here to share his moving story, so we hope you enjoy. God bless the nation. Obligation, altercation, interest of conflict, population, lost your patience, confirmation, symptoms of a hostage. How many siblings do you have? I have one older brother. He's four years older than I am. And how old are you right now? (laughs) You don't have to answer. (laughs) Doesn't matter. I'm 61. It's hard to believe that I actually made it this far had a pretty significant life and you've done so much. Were you close to your parents growing up? Honestly, I was always a pretty independent kid. I started working when I was 13. I originally started working at a country club. And so I actually made like a pretty fair, we made a lot of money at that golf club, shining shoes in the summer. You know, it was like a great summer job. Mm -hmm. And then I bought my own car when I was 17. And the minute I left for school, I never came back again. Like I just lived in Hartford all summer long and I worked all through college. And by the way, most of my college education was paid for because I played football. I came out of college with with no loans or anything. You know, I was really fortunate. But I had a job on campus and I ran the athletic center. And then I also worked at a bar in downtown Hartford as a, a bouncer and a bartender all through college. Did you enjoy playing football given that you were? Yeah, it was great. I loved it. And the truth is, in college, when I started drinking and drugging, I kind of messed that up. I was nominated to the Boston Herald All-New England team when I was in college, and we were New England champions both my sophomore and my senior year and rated second or third in the East. And I had opportunities to go and try out in Canada and stuff, and I was too busy drinking and drugging to take advantage of that, which was, you know, look, I don't have any regrets about my life, but that was something that when I look back, I, I just... You know, it would have been nice to have made some some different decisions back then, but I was too busy drinking and drugging to go do that. But yeah, I'm a firm believer in sports for kids. And Given your experience with football, what would you say are the benefits of, I guess, like any age playing sports, especially young kids? Sports is, in a lot of ways, a metaphor for the real world. There's going to be winners and losers, and that's just how life is, you know? And I think that it teaches kids a lot about how to be part of a team. It's important to make sacrifices um, for the good of the whole. It also set forth in me a lifelong belief in keeping not just my mind, but my body fit. And even through all my drinking and drugging, I I worked out all the time. It seems like you've always been pretty active, even since 13, to go and get a job at the country club. And it seems like you've always had that motivation for... (laughs) No laziness. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's true. I think I learned that from a young age. And that's one of the things that I can thank my dad for. We may have a lot of differences, but one of the things that I've always thanked him for is that he had a great work ethic and he right. taught mm-hmm. that to us. I have two and a half full-time jobs right now. I mean, I'm sad about a lot of my friends who are suffering through Corona, right? but I happen to be somebody who has benefited from it. You know, I think we make the best of what we have. And so I work from six o'clock in the morning to like three o'clock in the afternoon at my day job for a huge insurance company I work for. And then at four o'clock, I start doing rabbi work. Going back to talking about 
your drug and alcohol addiction and when that started. Do you want to talk a little bit more about how the drug and alcohol affected your homelessness and your experience through all of that and anything you want to tell us really? (laughs) Well, when did you start drinking or did you get involved in drinking first or drugs? I started drinking at the ripe old age of 13. My next door neighbor and myself had the, the, the two paper routes in the city where we lived in Hamden, Connecticut. And he and I were best friends and he was maybe the best athlete in the state. We would collect for our paper routes on Friday nights. And so we both made a fair amount of money doing that. And then on Friday nights, after we finished collecting for our paper routes, we'd go to the liquor store down the street from our house and we'd stand outside when we were 13 and we'd have people go in and buy us liquor. And back then we would have them buy us blackberry brandy, which is like disgusting. Wow. I mean, it's like yeah. most disgusting. So bad. It was so bad. But then we'd take a bottle of blackberry brandy and we would go down into the woods um, near our house. And on Friday nights, we'd just drink, you know, a bottle of blackberry brandy and get loaded. That's how I started drinking. Do you um, think that working and feeling that sense of independence was something that propelled you towards going and purchasing the drinks and living the more, I guess, adult life at the age of 13? I I think that, you know, we probably thought we were more adult than we really were. Mm -hmm. And I also think, though, that even though I was a really good athlete and a really good student, and where I come from, if you could do those two things, you could get away with almost anything else. Even though I was part of that in crowd, I never really felt totally adequate. You know, it's funny how alcoholics and drug addicts say they, they feel like they have this hole inside of them that they're trying to fill. Well, that was definitely the case for me. I just never felt adequate. But once I started drinking, man, I, I felt great. You know, 13 is also an age where you start to compare a lot. And it's almost like the first phase of life where your innocence is being questioned a little bit. Right. And it's all of this crazy life transitioning that your body and mind are going through. So I I totally understand where you were at with that. Yeah. Growing up, given your lifestyle, it's a hard question to ask, but did you ever see yourself becoming homeless or being in that situation? I don't think any of us ever imagined that. You know, I grew up in a middle-class Jewish family in Connecticut. And so I think when I ended up in the homeless shelter, I was probably as shocked as anybody, you know, and especially because I was a really successful guy and I made a lot of money. I was approached by a very, very large insurance company called Aetna Life and Casualty. Okay. And I was actually the first account executive hired into an entirely new division. There were five of us that started that whole division. And two years later, there were 3,000 people in that division. So I. Wow. And I spent five years at Aetna doing that. And then. And then I went to work for the Chubb Group and I did that for a year. But my addiction and and all that had already started to really set in when I was at Aetna. Like I was a really successful, very functional drug addict and alcoholic for a lot of years. And um, that's a scary place to be at, you know all of a sudden the world started crashing in around me and Mm. I blew up my entire life. Overnight went from living in a house on a lake to driving around in a Porsche with a motorcycle in my garage and a company car and lots of money in the bank to blowing everything and uh, being penniless and ended up 
in a homeless shelter in Minneapolis, Minnesota. At that time, I went through three inpatient and one outpatient drug and alcohol treatment in the span of about a year while I was literally losing everything and uh, couldn't get sober. And then after my last inpatient treatment, which was uh, at the Hazelden Foundation in Minnesota, I ended up at the homeless shelter. And what was your first night like at the homeless shelter? Well, I mean, it was, you know, it was a scary place. My first roommate in the homeless shelter was a guy named Mario. He was a huge drug dealer. He was like a Colombian cartel guy. And Mario was dealing lots and lots of cocaine and he got caught. And while he was out on bail awaiting trial, his lawyer thought it would be a good idea for him to be in the homeless shelter, working with the homeless and thought it would look good. You know, he's doing volunteer work. He's in the homeless shelter. He's helping the homeless. I lived with him for two months. Now, mind you, we're living in this tiny room and I was in shock. I mean, I was literally traumatized. And so after living with Mario for two months, he was a couple of months away from going to trial. And he wakes me up at three in the morning one night and he says, hey, Art, get up, man. I got to talk to someone. And I said, you know, Mario, like it's three in the morning. What do you got to talk about? He's like, no, no, seriously, get up. So I got up and I sat on the side of my bed and our beds were so close. We couldn't even sit facing each other because our knees would hit. Oh, my God. Yeah. So we had to sit like, you know, where our knees were next to each other. Right. And Mario right. then proceeds to tell me that he says, you know how everyone thinks I'm going to trial for drug smuggling? I said, yeah, you know, we kind of know your story. And he says, uh, well, that's not really the primary charge. That is one of them. But the primary charge is I'm going to trial for murder. It turns out that Mario stabbed the guy to death in a drug deal. He stabbed the guy like t- literally 20 times in a drug deal that went bad. And, and then he says to me, he goes, but you can't tell anyone because nobody knows. Everybody thinks I'm going to trial for drug smuggling. So then after he tells me that, I got to live with him for a couple more months. After he tells me he stabbed the guy to death in a drug deal. That went, a drug deal that went bad. Even though he told you that, did you still have some sense of trust with him? Or was that all down the drain? Well, Mario was a nice guy and we got along fine. I mean, he was a nice guy to me. But you can't help but look at someone a little differently when you find out. It's not like he shot someone with a rifle at 100 yards. I mean, he stabbed the guy to death 20 times. So that's like a pretty rageful, angry thing. Like, you you stab someone once, that's bad enough. Twice, maybe you get away with it. But, you know, 20 times. So Mario, the day he left for trial is the last time I saw him. Because Mario ended up getting 19 years in a maximum security federal prison in Stillwater, Minnesota. So, and I had to live with him for a couple of months after he told me that. So you try not to, but you can't help but look at someone a little differently when you find out that they stabbed someone to death, you know? Yep, definitely. Uh, so I, I kind of didn't sleep really well for a couple of months after he told me that. I believe so we trial. And you put that on you. That's, that's yeah, a lot yeah. of information to give someone <laughs> that you yeah. just met. And so here I am, this nice, like, Jewish kid from Connecticut uh-huh. living with Mario the murderer. That's Mario the murderer. <laughs> I hate to laugh at that, but wild. It's funny, so after, right? After Mario left, where you were still in the shelter, right? How long did you spend in the shelter? I lived in the shelter for a total of like around ten or eleven months. Were you ever physically living on the streets of Minnesota, or you just spent time, your time in the shelter? I- I never actually had to live on the street. I lived in the homeless shelter for 10 or 11 months. And then 
when I left the homeless shelter, it's a long story, but I like, I kind of got kicked out of the homeless shelter because I broke a rule. It was a crazy rule, but I broke a rule. So they told me I had 48 hours to leave. And then I had to find a place to stay. And I slept in this really raunchy hotel for a few nights. And then I actually found a couple of sober guys who needed a roommate. And so I moved in with them. And so I never actually slept on the street. And at that point, when you moved in with your roommates, were you able to afford rent? Were you still working? What was your situation? All I had was a, a little bit of money, like a, a couple thousand dollars to my name that was parked in a bank account in Florida with my mom. Um, so I actually got a, a job working at the YMCA, making like, I don't even know what I made, $3.50 an hour, $4 an hour, working in the, in the fitness room and, and at the membership desk at that time. Because I lived with two other guys, my rent was not that much. I think the rent was eighteen hundred, but my portion was six hundred. So I could make enough money working part time at the YMCA to afford that. But I didn't have a car. I mean, I, I rode the buses and I walked everywhere, and you know there was no such thing as Uber or anything back then. So uh, it was a little different. What was your relationship with your family like at the time that you ended up staying at the homeless shelter? Did you try to stay with your family before? going that route? It's a great question. First of all, I, I, I didn't even tell my family. I didn't even tell my mom or my dad that I was in the homeless shelter. I was just embarrassed and, you know, it just, I couldn't even tell them that they would have been shattered and I would never let them come see me while I was there. That's for sure. My brother knew after I had been there a little while and eventually he came to see me after I was out of the homeless shelter and he wanted to go look at it, which I was like, this is nothing that you could even imagine in your wildest dream. He came to visit me in Minneapolis. I want to go see where you were and what you went through. And I'm like, no, you don't. He's like, I really do. I'm like, dude, this is not, this will be an indelible mark on your brain forever. If you go there, it's like a traumatizing thing. You know, it's not like the homeless shelters in, in Santa Monica, believe me. The one, Cause I do volunteer work here in Santa Monica. Sometimes the homeless shelter is not like, yeah. there's nothing like that. Could you tell us the differences yeah. your experience in Minneapolis and here. So first of all, when you would walk in my room at the homeless shelter mm-hmm. and turn on the light, all the cockroaches would run for the corners. There's no cockroaches in the homeless shelters here in Santa Monica. I can tell you that for sure. The homeless shelter here in Santa Monica, the ones that I've been to are really nice. They have TV rooms with big leather chairs and 80 inch screen TVs and computers, and they have really nice kitchens. And the homeless shelter that I lived in was... First of all, I slept with Mario, you know, for four months, then he left. And then I got another roommate after about six months there, I got my own room and I slept on a mattress on the floor. Hmm. The homeless shelters here are just much nicer. They're newer, they're cleaner. They have TVs and computers. You know, we converted one of the uh, rooms in the homeless shelter into like a TV room, but it was, it was not pretty. So I took my brother to see the we went to the food center that I worked at because the homeless shelter owned a food center. It served 4,000 hot meals a week to the homeless in Minneapolis. And I had to agree to work 38 hours a week for a dollar an hour to earn my room and my board so I could be there because I didn't have any money. I couldn't, it's not like I could go anywhere. I brought my brother there and we sat in the food center and ate with the homeless people Hmm. so that he could see what that was like. And how was that experience having your brother there? You know, it was pretty traumatic for him. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
I kind of was already used to it. I had been there, you know, I mean, at that time I was out of the homeless shelter, but I had been there over 10 months. Uh, and then I brought him to the housing shelter and I showed him a couple of the different rooms that I lived in. And then we went and sat down in this room that we had converted into a little TV room. And the walls were once white in that room, but because so many people smoked, there was like, they had turned yellow. Like the walls were all yellow, had like tar on them and stuff. It was pretty nasty. And my brother sat down and we had a glass of water, I guess. And he just proceeded to start to cry uncontrollably. He really wept uncontrollably for what seemed like an hour, but was probably 10 minutes. And, um, and he was just like, you know, never in my wildest dream could I have ever imagined that this was where you were. I just couldn't have even dreamed of it. It's not even within my realm of thought. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Heavy. What were your interactions like with the others, aside from Mario, at the homeless shelter? You learn when you, when you spend time with the homeless community, you learn, number one, there's, a, there's an enormous amount of mental illness. Mm-hmm. in the homeless population. There's a ton of drug addiction and alcoholism. You know, it was a scary place. There were a lot of scary people there, quite honestly. And I almost got in a number of altercations there and it was not, you know, it was just a, a very frightening place. And there were a lot of people living in that homeless shelter who were doing drugs. And I found drugs when I cleaned rooms all the time. I never took any, but I found drugs all the time. Wow. And then we also had, we had a free shower down in the basement. So between the hours of 10 and two, now remember this is Minnesota, right? In the middle of the winter, it's pretty cold, like really cold. And so we had a shower where homeless people could come and stand in line and take a 10 minute hot shower. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine how many people stood in line to take a hot shower during the day in Minneapolis. And so I got to know a number of other homeless people who were living on the streets who were on a waiting list to get into the homeless shelter that I was in and others as well. And um, that was an interesting experience because if you were in housekeeping, like I was, you had four different floors, whoever had the basement did all the laundry. And so you also had responsibility for the free shower as well on a rotating basis. What do you think pushed you out of your cycle of homelessness? Was there a specific turning point in your life where you're like, okay, I need to get my shit together? Or was it someone else that came into your life that pushed you out of it? How would you explain that? Was it the cockroaches (laughs) that pushed you out of it? (laughs) (laughs) They played a a part, that's for sure. Mario. Mario also played a part. Um, Yeah, but no, I'd say that it's a, that's a great question, Sean, but I, because I, I would say that it's probably a combination of a number of things. Like I made a decision when I was in that homeless shelter, I got on my knees one night and I just made a, I, I made a commitment with God. And I just said, you know what, if you ever give me a life back, I get emotional when I say this, I absolutely promise and commit that I will always spend a portion of my time helping those less fortunate than myself. And that I will always commit a portion of my money to charity. And, you know, I'd like to think that, that God kept up his end of the bargain and I've tried to keep up my end of the bargain. And it wasn't easy. You know, it was a tough road back. It was scary and it was not easy. And at times I thought, holy shit. I mean, when I was in the homeless shelter, like after three months of being there, when I finally realized where the hell I was, it was traumatizing. I was like, oh, my God, are you kidding me? This is what I did to my life. I had like a pretty good life. Mm-hmm. 
and this is what I did to my life, then I really vowed to God and to myself that I would change and I would do things differently and that I would live a different life. And so getting sober was a big part of that. I've been blessed to be sober over 29 years now. Were you sober when you entered the homeless shelter? When I entered the homeless shelter, I was sober about 35 days, probably. And I wouldn't call 35 days being sober. I would call 35 days being clean, you know, Mm -hmm. because there's a difference between being clean and not using drugs and alcohol and being sober. When I walked in there, I had not taken a drink or used a drug for about 35 days. Okay. I think like every drug addict and alcoholic, you you come to a point where you have to make a decision. Are you going to do something productive with your life or are you going to continue to do what you've been doing? And for me, I just made a decision. I was going to do it differently and, and I wanted a different life. I mean, I really didn't want to be a prisoner to alcohol and drugs anymore. I wanted to live a life and I wanted to help other people understand that they can live a different life if they want to. So so you made a conscious decision to change your life. I think that I had a moment of clarity. I think if not all, certainly most alcoholics who get sober have a moment of clarity where they say, you know what, I'm done with this. I'm gonna, I got to do it different. And some people never get there. You know, some people have that thought, but never can get long-term sobriety. I mean, the statistics are pretty minuscule, you know. I'll just tell you a statistic that's pretty generally accepted. And, and I've done a lot of speaking on alcohol and drugs over the years at public schools and at public at national seminars. And of all the people who walk into a room of Alcoholics Anonymous during the course of any year, which are literally millions of people, less than 5% of those people will ever stay sober for 12 months or more. Wow, less than 5%. Wow, that's a very small number. Do you, yep. do you think it's because of the individual's circumstance? Do you think there needs to be more support from programs in the city for mental health stability, drug and alcohol use? What do you think it is? Do you think it's a little bit of both? I think that addiction is really difficult to overcome because I think that most people the disease of, I wrote a paper when I got my doctorate, it's called Mm -hmm. addiction in the brain. And it talks about that. We cannot have addiction without the brain. Okay. So this is what happens for addicts and alcoholics. My brain wants to tell me that I could use alcohol and drugs like anybody else. I'm no different, especially today. You know, I'm a successful guy today. So my brain wants to tell me that I can take a drink today and I can take a drink tomorrow and it's no big deal. Right. That's what my brain wants to tell me. But alcoholism and drug addiction is a disease of both the the mind and the body. The mind tells us we can have just one drink, but the minute we take one drink, we trigger the allergy of the body. And all of a sudden we never know. It's like playing Russian roulette, right? I might have a drink today and stop and I might have a drink tomorrow and stop. But the truth is I have enough money today that I could have, I might have a drink today and you might not see me for the next 10 years. I could drink for the rest of my life if I wanted to. And so I think that we have to pay attention to that. Mm. A therapist once explained it to me like this. This is before I had all the wisdom and the knowledge that I have today and all the crazy degrees that I have, which are, you know, I have way more degrees than any human should ever even think about. (laughs) But I think that, that this therapist explained it to me. He actually helped save my life. He said, being an alcoholic or a drug addict is like being a piece of white bread. We take this piece of white bread and we stick it in a toaster. 
And he said, we don't know exactly when or exactly how this piece of white bread becomes a piece of toast, but we know that it does. And he said, once the white bread becomes toast, it can never be white bread again. And then he looked at me right in the eye and he said, you're toast. And I thought, well, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I get that. So once you're an addict or an alcoholic, you can never go back to being like a normie. So then it's about how to live your life accordingly and an acceptance of that. Right known fact. Yeah. My belief and my experience has shown me, and I counsel people on this all the time. And my belief is that if we just take care of the stuff that's going on inside of us, you know, all of the stuff that's going on inside and we live a balanced life, there would never be any reason to use, right? Many years ago, I had a self-esteem teacher when I was living in the homeless shelter. His name was Bob Morris, and he had a very profound effect on my life. And I still think about him often. He would say that if we could give every person healthy self-esteem, there'd be no reason to use drugs or alcohol. If every person had healthy self-esteem, they wouldn't have a reason to use. And, and I think there's a lot of truth to that, actually. And so, um, you know, I just try to do the things today that fulfill me from a spiritual standpoint. I, I built a very, very strong spiritual foundation. And now as a rabbi, my whole thing is about combining spirituality and religion together and being able to have those two meet because I think that a lot of people are scared of religion. But when you look at Judaism, there's enormous amount of spirituality within Judaism. And so I try to teach my congregation about that every chance I get. And that's, I think, a really important thing to do. So it's what I try to, to carry forward is to teach people about how to just take care of themselves, live a balanced life. And then there'll be no reason to really use drugs or alcohol. I can't even imagine what taking a drug or, or drinking alcohol today would even do for me, especially knowing that 30 years ago, I was locked in a closet, snorting cocaine, drinking scotch and making obscene phone calls. You know, that was like my life. I literally lived in a walk-in closet, scared to death and paranoid for two years wow. while I was drinking and drugging. Do you think, given everything that you just said right now, which makes a lot of sense to me, do you think if that was put out or readily available for the homeless community around the world in LA, do you think that would make a difference? Do you think that would start leading people onto a better path towards not being homeless? Or do you think there needs to be more foundational support in other areas before doing that? I think that's an important question. I think that's a very important question. It's certainly very relevant today. There's a couple of things, and I, I just don't think that, the, that most of the politicians really understand this today. The homeless problem is not just, it's not a housing problem, although housing is part of the component. You have to, you know, somebody has to feel safe in a housing situation. But really, first of all, you have to be able to solve for the mental illness problem, right? Because I would say between 85 and 90% of the people who are homeless today have mental health issues as well as alcohol and drug issues. Right. So you have to solve those two issues first if you're going to help people build a better life. And there are some organizations out there that, that do make headway in that area. When I lived in Chicago, I sat on the board of directors of the Chicago YMCA, and I was the vice chairman of a capital campaign where we raised $30 million to renovate one of the largest single-room occupancy hotels in the country. And when we did it to help house the homeless, we did it not just to house them, we also had a life skills center. We taught people job training skills. We actually got Ben and Jerry's to donate a franchise 
which we put on the first floor of the YMCA in downtown Chicago, so we could have people actually get job training right there. That's so awesome. we had our Ben and Jerry's in the building. We housed uh, mentally ill pet patients who could be in the community from Northwestern Hospital. It wasn't just to take a 680 room hotel basically and house people, but you have to give more, right? If you want to do it, you have to be able to transition them back into the community so that they can become productive members. And then you can increase your success rate significantly. Now it's never going to be perfect. So maybe instead of having a 10% success rate, maybe now you have a 50 or 60% success rate. And we had a great success rate with people in downtown Chicago that we taught how to live different lives. But that all starts with treating the mental illness and the drug addiction and alcoholism. First of all, once you treat the drug addiction and alcoholism and somebody gets sober, Mm -hmm. you'll realize that a significant amount of that population, their mental illness will go away. I lived in a drug-induced psychosis for a couple of years. My therapist used to say that to me, you know, when I got sober, he'd say to me, he goes, man, you were like psychotic. You were a psychotic drug addict and alcoholic. You literally had severe psychosis. Mm-hmm. And he was right. You know, when I look back at who I was and what I was doing and my behaviors, he was totally right. So that's how you, I think you have to attack the homeless problem today. Unfortunately, the politicians don't understand that. So they've passed laws that make it very difficult, if not in, in some ways almost impossible, to actually work with that community. because of the laws that have been passed, because the politicians really don't understand the problem. I was just going to ask if you can give any examples of any of the laws that have been passed that are now interfering. So we allow homeless people to camp on the streets now, right? Right. It's like a homeless encampment, and there's nothing that the police can do about it because it's legal to do that. So we can't even bring them into a place where they could get the services they need to help them recover from alcoholism and drug addiction. Now, I never realized until I lived in the homeless shelter, there's a certain percentage of the homeless population that's homeless by choice. They've made a distinct choice that they don't want to follow the rules of society, so they're just going to be homeless. So that's maybe 15% of the homeless population that's made that decision. Mm-hmm. The rest, though, are alcohol and or drug addicted and have severe mental illness. But if mm-hmm. you can't legally take them and put them somewhere where they can get help, how do you make inroads or affect that issue or help somebody who legally you're not able to really help? Right. I actually love this perspective on it because a lot of the research I've been doing the past few months and a lot of the people that I talk to who are either interested in homelessness or have had previous experiences learning about it, it's a lot of people, it's just like housing this, housing that, de-housings, lawmakers. And I think that's a huge part of it. But to go back to what you're saying about treating the mental stability before putting someone in a house, that makes a huge difference. Because I think when we first talked, you said something like, if you put someone who has an alcoholic or drug addiction or who's mentally unstable and you give them a house, they're still mentally disabled or they still have that drug and alcohol addiction and they can lose that house again. Yeah, they'll lose it right away. I think where you're going with this whole treating the mental illness, you know, inpatient, outpatient, there's so many ways to do that. I just think that's the right step and that's what we need to aim for Mm -hmm. in order to really solve homelessness as an issue at its deep root. Yeah, I agree. And I think that You can't even begin to get to the mental illness until someone has not used drugs or alcohol for at least 90 days. True. 
because you can't figure out where the drug addiction and alcoholism starts and the mental illness ends or where the mental illness starts and the drug and alcohol addiction. And, you know, like you can't figure that out until somebody is completely drug and alcohol free for at least 90 days mm -hmm. right. because they're not going to have any clarity, number one. And you can't figure out what to treat if, they, if they're filled with drugs and alcohol. Right. So, I mean, look, the bottom line is if we could bring sobriety to a significant portion of the homeless population, we would eliminate probably 75% of the mental illness that exists in that population. I mean, that's really the truth. We have doctors who just want to prescribe drugs, right? That's what psychiatrists do today. They don't really do talk therapy. They just prescribe drugs. Mm -hmm. And that's also not a course of action that I believe in. And so when people come to me, people who I either counsel or who I sponsor in AA, and they talk to me about taking drugs, I'm like, that should be your last resort. Before I'll recommend that somebody take drugs, you know, like psychotropic meds or something like that, I'll say, let's keep a food diary. Let's figure out what food you're putting in your body, because we know that the type of food you put in your body has an enormous effect on your brain activity, right? And on your thought process. We know that. That's a fact. There's nothing, you know, we've researched that. Let's take a look at what's your regular exercise routine, because we know that if we could get people to exercise for 30 to 40 minutes every other day, we could probably eliminate 75% of the depression that exists in our right. country, right? Because people take psychotropic meds for depression. Yep. We could eliminate most of that if we could get people to just eat right and exercise properly, mm -hmm. like with just those two things, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I just think that we, we are, I just think we don't attack the problem with clear vision. I think we want to put a Band-Aid on it. I think we want to cover it up. And I think that the politicians who are in charge or who vote on these things really don't understand the issue. And it's easier for them to pour money at it and sweep it under the rug and to say, oh yeah, well, we gave a billion dollars to the homeless population in LA this year, rather than actually attack the problem and say, hey, you know what? We helped 100,000 homeless people get sober. And as a result, 50,000 of those people are now living productive lives in the community. We talked about this previously also, you know, with politics and politician comes corruption. And even when they are trying to make an effort, for example, Mayor Garcetti in 2018 started the Bridge to Home program. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. And he put about $460 million into that. That's right. Program. Yeah. Yet only a few housing and shelters have been in place. And, you know, his incentive was there will be mental health facilities, services, restrooms, showers, storage facilities, pet accommodations, around the clock on-site care for, you know, Angelinos who are sleeping on the streets. Even though all those things are said and all that money is put into those programs, not all of it's being used in the correct way. And I think that's where politicians really need to wake up and they need to be like, hey, if, if we're going to put all this money into a program like this, that could potentially be so effective. There's something fishy. There's something going on there that most of the public just doesn't know. About. I agree with you. I think that's totally right on target. And I think that, you know, unfortunately, I think we're attacking the, the problem from sort of the wrong angle. And, uh, yeah. and that's unfortunate. I think there's a lot of corruption in it. And I think that, you know, when you dig down, you find that the money that's being spent isn't really going the places that it really should go.
And there, but there are some organizations that do some good work in this area. And could you let our listeners know just before we're about to end places that people can volunteer? If you know of any places that are taking volunteers during COVID and really any insight you have on what we as a privileged community can do to better help people that are suffering homelessness right now. So uh, there's a couple of organizations that I'm aware of. I write the insurance for a company called PATH, People Assisting the Homeless, and they do really great work and they have great housing facilities and they have daycare for single moms in some of their facilities so that the moms can go to work. And they they do a lot of really cool things and and they've been a growing organization and I've insured them for quite a few years now. And, um, And I know a couple of their board members and I think they do really good work. There's an organization in Beverly Hills that does most of their work in Hollywood that I've done some volunteer work at. It's called Food on Foot. Their scope is small, but they do help people and they do great work. If somebody wants to just do peer volunteer work, you can volunteer at any one of the homeless shelters in Santa Monica. OPCC has at least three or four homeless shelters in Santa Monica. And the other place that I've done volunteer work at Meals on Wheels for 15 years. I deliver meals every Friday. Meals on Wheels is a great organization and they help a lot of people. And a lot of their people are really sweet people, but some of them are elderly and can't leave their, leave their houses and you know, have a number of other different issues that prevent them from being able to go and get food. So we bring food to their houses every day, five days a week. So there are a number of organizations that help. And there's a great alcohol and drug treatment center in Santa Monica called the Claire Foundation for all of the publicly funded treatment centers that I'm aware of. I think they do a pretty good job. And I've known a number of people who have gotten sober at Claire and put their lives back together. That's amazing. I love to hear that there's so many good places around us to volunteer. And even if it's on a smaller scale, you'd hope that the people that do make it out and that that high success rate um, works as a chain effect and that those people will then go ahead and be able to inspire others um, to make the same moves. Definitely. Just as you've been doing. Yeah. I've been fortunate. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for sharing your stories and your insight. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much, you guys. I was glad to do it. And I really appreciate you asking me to uh, to share this stuff.